This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. One thing we can say about every ancient religion that has survived to this day, no matter what wonderful traditions, culture, moral code, or philosophy that you have brought to this world, part of your legacy is in some way a mistreatment of women, whether viewing them as property, burning witches, stoning adulterers, keeping menstruating women out of temples, somewhere, somehow, the little cynic within keeps nudging us to believe, possibly, that religion was created by and for men. You may have heard that the American evangelical community has been shaken in recent years by accusations of toxic masculinity, sexual abuse, and the cover-ups. If you're listening to this in late October 2021 and not on a podcast— Note that on Wednesday, November 17th, at 12 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, there will be a webinar that explores these and other issues. In this webinar, Dr. Amanda Bankhuysen and Rev. Elaine May of the Christian Reformed Church here in Grand Rapids will talk with Dr. Beth Allison Barr about her new book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, and discuss what the Bible does and does not say about women and women's roles. They will also reflect together on the impact ideas about biblical womanhood have had on women, the church, and abuse. You can learn more about joining this webinar, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, by emailing womensleadership at crcna.org. To give you a sneak preview of just what one might expect from this event, we've asked Dr. Beth Allison Barr to join us. And a little bit about her. Dr. Beth Allison Barr is a professor of history and associate dean of graduate studies at Baylor University, where she did her undergrad work. And she received her master's and Ph.D. in medieval history from the University of North Carolina. Her research focuses on women and religion in medieval and early modern England, especially in how they are viewed and portrayed in sermon literature. Beth is the author of The Pastoral Care of Women in Late Medieval England, co-editor of The Acts of the Apostles, Four Centuries of Baptist Interpretation. She is also a regular contributor to The Anxious Bench, a religious history blog on Pathios, which has paved the way for her contributions in Christianity Today and The Washington Post. So we welcome to Common Threads, Dr. Beth Allison Barr. Hello, Beth. Hi, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, My first question is a word that has come up in your book and in this this whole movement is complementarianism. And I'd like to explain what that is. I always thought I was a complementarianist because I like to compliment people if they are having a, (laughs) a good hair day or, you know, they they did something wonderful at work. I usually say, hey, at a boy, at a girl or something. But it's not that, is it? 
it is not. And indeed, one of the things I have to keep catching myself on, because I, I write the word complementarian so many times, is I have to spell it not as in a compliment, which is what you're just talking about, but as in complementary roles, um, which is what the phrase refers to. And the phrase, it's a really new word in some sense um, that was actually coined in the late 80s. And it was coined by a group of men who were involved with the founding of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Many of them were also involved in the beginning of the Gospel Coalition. And the word, they came up with the term complementarian because they were not satisfied with the phrase Christian patriarchy. And they thought that people had negative reactions to the phrase Christian patriarchy. And so they wanted a term that would uh, still that would still support women's secondary roles to men, but be more palatable than the phrase Christian patriarchy. And so the term that they came up with was complementarity. Now, so... Christian patriarchy was a thing. I mean, it was a term, yes. and it was not—that's yes. interesting, because as soon as I hear it out of your lips, I think of it in a pejorative sense. Yes. Um, yeah, well, go I'm on. not sad about that. Patriarchy <laughs> is not a good thing. <laughs> and and so, so normally when we say that one thing complements another, uh, that my work at the radio station here— with my engineer Rick, we we complement each other in terms of uh, he knows exactly what to do mechanically, and hopefully I know what to do in front of a microphone. That that, that that's a big if. But let's right. say we complement one another in our work, but there's not really a hierarchy involved. Um, but isn't complementarianism hierarchical? It is indeed, and that's a, that's an interesting aspect to it because um, complementarity does indeed mean what you just said, that you complement one another in the roles that you do. And so the term complementarianism used uh, to, as a substitution for Christian patriarchy um, is somewhat misleading. because and, and the reason that they chose the term is because they're trying to emphasize that women and men are indeed equal in the image of God and spiritually um, but that they are ordained by God to have different roles in life. And complementarianism um, emphasizes or tries to emphasize that different doesn't mean unequal. It's sort of like separate but equal. It should all, you know, bring up Plessy versus Ferguson um, um, ideas to us. But it's uh, the uh, it's a very similar argument that women have separate, distinct roles from men, but those roles are what they argue the equivalent. They're equally of value. It's just that women are not allowed to do some of the things that men are allowed to do. And those things that women are not allowed to do place them always underneath the authority of men. So it introduces hierarchy into what really isn't supposed to be a hierarchical word. Um, I will say quickly, there is some history, though, to complementarianism being used hierarchically. During the Enlightenment era, this is actually when the word was first introduced, to emphasize that women have subordinate, that women are intellectually inferior to men, intellectually and physically inferior to men. And so they have complementary roles where women are in the household 
and men are in the public sphere. And this was not a Christian idea. This was introduced by, um, you know, early modern philosophy that was by such as Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Um, and so it's not it's not a Christian idea, but it is, is a similar sort of thing, that women are created in a way to do distinctly different work from men that is underneath male authority. So it's not just the ancient religions that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. Uh, no. Uh, uh, secular movements as well have yes. done the same thing. That's exactly right. Now, one thing that I have heard over the years from Christian sources is that Jesus was a feminist and that he one of his one of his goals was to elevate Jewish women from the milieu that they were living in uh, and and to to raise them up if you will um now Jews I've heard uh, uh disagree with that understanding mm-hmm. where do you fit in in the, in that argument so um it is it is interesting the way that this argument has developed, and part of this within Christianity um, is is connected to anti-Semitism within Christianity. So there are some Christian scholars who argue that Christianity itself, through Jesus, is liberating, and that Judaism is not liberating for women. Um, this is misleading, uh, because on the one hand, the same types of uh, elevation of women that we find Jesus emphasizing. We also see God doing in the Old Testament. Uh, you can think about the story of Hagar, um, in which you know this woman who is uh, essentially you know is is forced into a sexual relationship with Abraham, bears him a son, then is thrown out um, and left to fend for herself. Uh, God comes to her and God um, God protects her and she names God as the God who sees. And so what we, you know, see in the Old Testament is we have these moments in the same way that we see with Jesus, where we see God reaching out to particularly to take care of women and to lift them up and to make sure that they're protected in a very patriarchal society. So Jesus isn't doing anything different than what we see God doing in the Old Testament. Um, But early Christians who were I'm sorry, by early Christians, I mean Christian thinkers and actually the modern um, world who were very interested in differentiating Christianity from Judaism, did portray Christianity as being a liberating force in the lives of women. Um, The way that I would actually see it is that both Christian women and Jewish women in the first century lived in a patriarchal world. Um, and what we find is that the Christian, the Judeo-Christian tradition has always elevated women um, for both in the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition. Now, how Christian leaders and Jewish leaders implemented that has often been patriarchal. And because resorting back to those patriarchal, you know, the, the patriarchal influences of the world around them. So, so is that a little bit helpful? It, it is. So uh, what you're saying is it's possible that in first century Palestine, perhaps there was an overarching patriarchy that per, that ignored the biblical the biblical stories uh, and God's word, if you will, and 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 perhaps Jesus was part of a movement that said, "Hey, we got to get back to." what 
I believe is the the divine plan. Is that a possibility? Yes, and uh, yeah, that certainly is part of it. We also know that, you know, one of the reasons I think Paul was so comfortable with putting women in leadership positions is because there was already a tradition in Judaism to have women in leadership positions. So we actually do find there are parallels in the Jewish world with women being leaders and teachers. Uh, they were certainly not as, plenteous, uh, as plentiful as men, but we do find them, and that's one of the things that um, Jewish scholars have emphasized, is that um, the roles of women like Phoebe as a deacon and even Junia as an apostle, that uh, there were also women in the Jewish tradition in the first century playing similar leadership roles. So that provides even more evidence for the fact that women did continue in these types of leadership roles in the early church. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Dr. Beth Allison Barr. We're talking about both her book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, and the webinar that is coming up on November 17th of the same name. And we'll have more information about that webinar and how you can join later in the program. Uh, you you just brought up uh, Junia and uh, and others uh in your in your book you mentioned that when you had a student read Romans 16 which is a, a, a greeting for those of you who aren't familiar it's a, it Paul says hi to this person hi to that person hi to all these other people <laughs> and and uh in it he indicates for instance Junia who is labeled a, a deaconess and, and some other women as well. As, as it, it certainly sounds like they're kind of executives in, in his uh, movement. And you said that it, it kind of hit you. How did you not know that before? What was so important about this moment versus all of the other times you must have read that? Oh, that is such a good question. So, um, you know, it's one of those things is that you, one of the wonderful things about teaching is that every time we teach a text, we often come to it with new eyes and we see things. And so almost any text that I ever teach, every time I teach it, I see something different and something new in it. And sometimes, and I, I have exactly the same reaction that you just had, gosh, I should have seen that earlier. I don't know why I didn't see that until now. And um, so on the one hand, these were passages that I had been reading all of my life. Um, on the other hand, however, what I had not done until I really started teaching this course was reading different translations of that same passage and putting them side by side. And when you do that, when you take Romans 16 and you put, say, the English Standard Version um, next to the NRSV, and next to, and I didn't start using the NRSV, which is uh, very relevant, you know, in thinking about the interpretation of some of these women's passages, it's been very helpful to me, especially in 1 Corinthians 14. Um, so I put it together with, you know, the, with the ESV and the NRSV and the KJV and the 1611 KJV, and that's what we were actually looking at in class and reading. And one of the things that you see is the variations in these words that apply to women. But you don't see variations as much in the way the men are described, and that's something that, of course, stands out to me. 
Um, something else that hadn't occurred to me until later on is I had been doing some more scholarship in the first century church, and I had begun to realize that Romans 16, and this is something Scott McKnight talks about, is actually probably referencing house churches because Romans is written to house churches in Rome. And so Scott McKnight posits that there's probably five to six house churches that are specifically mentioned in Romans 16. So what we are seeing here are the members of these house churches as well as the leaders of these house churches in Romans 16. So I think those things together, reading all of these translations side by side, as well as this knowledge that I had been learning about the house churches in Romans, um, made me suddenly, suddenly it jumped out to me what was going on in this, you know, that fact that there are so many women that are mentioned in this passage, um, that we have a woman who is mentioned as a deacon, we have a woman who is mentioned as an apostle, we have women who are mentioned in these house church leadership roles, and it really did. It was just one of where those things came together for me in this classroom, and I suddenly realized that this passage underscored women in every leadership position available in the first century church. Um, so it was just, it was, you know, it's not the first time I've had a moment like that teaching. I think all teachers will, will can talk about similar things that have happened. But um, it was a convergence. And, and it was actually, um, I didn't intend to read it from so many different versions. It's just that I had a student who had a copy of the ESV in class. And I then wanted, you know, had it read also from different versions. And so I think that's really what it was, was putting all those versions side by side that made it jump out to me what was going on with Junia, what was going on with Phoebe. Um, after this episode in class, one of my students actually went on to write her research paper on Junia. And she actually got it published in an undergraduate um, journal. Uh, so it also stuck out to her <laughs> um, after, after we read these texts together. Now, people who would criticize your work, uh, who do maintain a more so-called traditional understanding of, of male-female roles, uh, particularly in the church, uh, they would say that, yes, these people did have roles in the church, roles of leadership, but that their leadership, but that their roles were designed specifically to minister to women so yes. that they weren't preaching to a, a mixed crowd or instructing yeah. men. How, how would you respond to that? Well, yeah, that is, um, that's particularly in reference to the role of deaconess. And there is in the um, really in the North African tradition, in the Coptic tradition, um, we find that early on, by the second and third century, there is a differentiation between the role of deacon and the role of deaconesses, and they were to take care of the spiritual development of men, deacons, and deaconesses for the women. Um, and so we do see that division happen, but it is, it's a later division. We can trace it. It's in the second and the third century that we see it developing. Um, and the role of deaconess, though, the role of a female deacon is not always defined in that way as being caring for particularly women. Um, we also know that the role of Phoebe here as, and she's the one who is labeled as a deacon, servant, 
We know that that word that is used to describe Phoebe is the same word that is used throughout Luke and Acts on multiple occasions to describe the work of the male apostles. So it is exactly the same word that's used to describe the work of men um, who are in these leadership roles that we don't question throughout other parts of the Bible. The only other time that we really see this word applied specifically to a woman is to Martha, and we have done the same thing with Martha. We have Martha of Bethany. We have read it as being a different type of deacon than the men, but there's no indication in the text that it should be read this way. This is something we have carried completely to the text. So we've done this with Phoebe. In the first century world, there is no reason that this role would have been differentiated. And in fact, we know that Phoebe was given the Book of Romans and was entrusted with it to take it back to Rome. And she wasn't just a messenger um, in the sense that she put it in her travel bag and carried it to somebody else. When you were given the text like that, you were also the first preacher of that text. So what we find is Paul entrusts the Book of Romans, which scholars have said is, you know, in some ways the most important of his letters, and he sends it back with a woman to be read by a woman to a mixed audience of men and women in house churches. Because house churches, that was one of the scandalous things that early Christians did, is that they met all together, women and men and children and slaves, all meeting together in one assembly. And so Phoebe would have been reading the letter to these early house churches in Rome. So I, I just don't think there's any validity. There's, there's not any – the evidence clearly suggests that Phoebe's role as deacon in the first century was the same tasks that men – that the male disciples were doing so or why, the male deacons were doing. Thank you. So, so why is it that there are Christian denominations today – who do not offer a role of deaconess to women when it is a biblical tradition? That's a very good question. Um, So what you often find is you find in some more conservative churches that they say, oh, yes, women should have the role of deaconess. Um, But then they do one of two things. Either they don't really, they never get around to electing women to that office. So you end up with churches that, you know, espouse that women can be deaconess, but then they never put women in that position. You have some churches, like in the Southern Baptist tradition, that would often say that the deaconess is simply the wife of the deacon. Um, And so they would say, you know, you elect a man to be a deacon, and his wife, by default, becomes a deaconess. And so you kind of get around it that way. I remember that because my grandmother was considered a deaconess because she was married to a deacon in a Southern Baptist church. Um, And so some kind of get around it by doing that, by extending it to the to the married spouse of a deacon. Um, and some translations even emphasize that within the text, that that's what, you know, is going on here, that the deaconess is the wife of a deacon. Um, and then others, I mean, part of it is, is just the way that we have translated these texts in our English Bible translations. We have, you know, Phoebe, the word that's used to describe her as deacon is often not translated as deacon. It's translated as servant. And this implies that she has a different type of role than the male deacons. She's not given the same title in our English Bible translations. Um, The same with Martha that we find in Luke. Um, The word deacon associated with her is is mostly is translated as tasks. 
And um, the way we tell the story of Martha is that she, you know, her tasks are domestic and household focused um, instead of ministry tasks. So I, part of it is, is our English Bible translations that we minimize the role of women and what they were actually doing. And this leads us to then practice that minimization of women's roles within the ecclesiastical structures of our churches. And when when Paul refers to somebody as an apostle, what do we think he was saying? And and he refers to a woman as an apostle, but I would be just as surprised if he said, and greetings to Harry, an apostle. I mean, what makes an apostle? Yes, an apostle was an early, you know, in the beginning, an apostle was one of the um, early leaders of the church who was appointed by Jesus, who saw Jesus and was sent with the message of Jesus. They are the messengers of the gospel. Um, and we know that term was also used, you know, Paul says that he's the last sort of apostle in the sense that he was one of the witnesses of Christ. Uh, but we also know that there were a lot of women who were involved in these early groups, who were with Jesus, who witnessed. I mean, again, we have Mary and Martha, who are examples of this. They witnessed Jesus. Um, they were with him during his teachings. They witnessed the, resur- the, the crucifixion. And, of course, it was Mary who was the first at the resurrection. Um, so they fulfill all of these requirements of being an apostle, of having been with Jesus, having seen Jesus, having um, received the teachings of Jesus, and then having, after the resurrection of Christ, actually then going out to tell others about Jesus. And in fact, the medieval tradition is that Mary and Martha actually went and became, you know, great evangelists um, in France. Uh, there's not any historical evidence to that, but it's interesting that that story, that they're, they're depicted in that way as being evangelists, missionaries, apostles in France. Um, so there was a lot of people who are associated with Jesus that we don't necessarily get the names from. We can also think about the, the 72 that are sent out, um, those early evangelists in Luke. So the word apostle is particularly referring to these folk in these early groups who were part of the early teachings of Jesus um, that believed were followers of Jesus and then continued to spread the gospel after the resurrection. Um, And we know that women were among these groups. I can imagine now a very precocious Sunday school student uh, making a teacher crazy when asked, (laughs) and how many apostles were there, Johnny? (laughs) Yes, indeed. And then mentioning all of the possible names. Yes. Yes. You know, (laughs) Uh, we like Sunday school answers. We like real clear Sunday school answers. Yes. Uh, Beth, we are down to the wire for this edition of Common Threads, but this is a great conversation, and I hope you can join us next week, and we'll continue. I would be happy to. You've been listening to WGVU's Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella. Uh, My guest today has been Beth Allison Barr. She will be the star of a webinar that is going to be taking place on November 17th. It is going to be at 12 Eastern Daylight Time. It's sponsored by the Christian Reformed Church. And you can learn more about that event by going to women's leadership at crcna.org. I'm Fred Stella. Join us next week. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, 
its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. Hello, I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Dr. Beth Allison Barr. She is going to be the central figure in a webinar that's coming up very soon on November 17th at 12 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. The webinar will be focused on the new book, from uh, Dr. Barr, and it is called The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And she will be discussing this book with Dr. Amanda Benkheisen and Reverend Elaine May of the Christian Reformed Church here in Grand Rapids. And the focus of the event will discuss what the Bible does and does not say about women and women's roles. And they will also reflect together on the impact ideas about biblical womanhood have had on women, the church, and abuse. You can learn more about joining this webinar, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, by emailing womensleadership at crcna.org. Let's uh, tell you a little bit about our guest. Dr. Beth Allison Barr is a professor of history and associate dean of graduate studies at Baylor University, where she did her undergrad work. And her MA and PhD in medieval history was received from the University of North Carolina. Her research focuses on women and religion in medieval and early modern England, especially in how they are viewed and portrayed in sermon literature. Beth is the author of The Pastoral Care of Women in Late Medieval England, co-editor of The Acts of the Apostles, Four Centuries of Baptist Interpretation. She is also a regular contributor to The Anxious Bench, a religious history blog on Pathios, which has paved the way for her contributions in Christianity Today and The Washington Post. So we welcome once again to Common Threads, Dr. Beth Allison Barr. Hello, Beth. Hi, thanks for having me back. Certainly. So last week we talked about the trials and tribulations that many women in the evangelical movement have uh, with what is called complementarianism uh, or, or uh, uh, patriarchal, patriarchal hierarchy. Yes. Um, all right, and my question to you and my question to many of the women who have been challenged by this culture, why not just walk across the street and become a Methodist or (laughs) Presbyterian USA or 
Anglican, the, uh, the Episcopalian. Why? What? What makes you so firmly connected to the church that you are connected to, and and not simply move on to a, a place where you would be much more free to ha- to to believe what you believe and to instruct as you have learned? That's a very good question. It is also why the subtitle of my book is How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth, because that's why women do not leave in these conservative churches. They have been taught that not only are women called by God to be under the authority, under male leadership, but they have also been taught that to read the Scripture any other way um, is to be is to devalue Scripture and to be the beginning of the slippery slope that leads one away from faithful orthodoxy um, into what might eventually become atheism. And so it has been that you know the argument is is that there is only really one way to read the biblical text, and that it has been correctly interpreted um, by conservative evangelicals, mostly through white male lenses, and that in the role that there is no wiggle room in the Bible for what God calls women to do, that they are underneath male authority, and that re- that references the household as well as the church. And although there are some, you know, there is a continuum um, in within, within conservative evangelicalism where some churches allow women to do almost everything but be a senior pastor, um, and other churches that allow women to do almost nothing except for to teach children, and some of those churches even discourage women from working outside the home. Uh, so there is a continuum within this, but nonetheless, the idea is is that women have to be underneath male authority, and that churches that allow women to have authority over men have, in the words of Tim Keller, done something, or a paraphrase of Tim Keller, have done something to the scriptures that they have a loose reading of Scripture and they do not have a high authority of Scripture, which means that their faith is ultimately suspect. That's interesting that you say that uh, there's this slippery slippery slope uh, yeah. from, from moving to a more liberal denomination to atheism. <laughs> it reminds me of a, a, a conversation I had with a, a friend of mine uh, who was reformed, and then his church actually closed, and he started going to an Episcopalian church. And his brother is an atheist. And so in a subsequent conversation, uh, he says to his brother, yeah, I I left uh, the reformed church. I'm now going to an Episcopalian church. The brother said, yeah, uh, Episcopalianism, that's a good exit religion. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there is a perception of that. Um, And, you know, as historians, uh, we look at patterns like this, and there's a different way to read those patterns. 
Um, on the one hand, one could argue that um, leaving that people who move from conservative denominations to more liberal denominations, and then that's an exit way to leave the church, we could argue that them moving to more liberal denominations is the exit, is what causes them to leave the church. That's how it's being read. Or you could flip it and think, is what is going on in these conservative churches that is causing people when they is causing people to leave them and when they leave them to begin to lose their faith. And so we could, instead of putting the root of the problem in more mainline denominations, could the root of the problem be in these conservative traditions that have such a legalistic understanding of biblical text that they teach people that if you read the Bible any other way, that essentially you're not a Christian. And then when those people realize that say, Seventh-day creationism actually is not sustainable, that then leads them to be like, oh, I can't trust the Bible, and that's the exit strategy? That's what leads them out of the church? Um, You know, there's more than one way to read (laughs) why people from conservative denominations who move to mainline traditions sometimes end up exiting the church. And I tend to think that maybe the problem lies in the conservative traditions, not the other way around. I'm curious. Uh, let's let's take a look at the tradition of female circumcision that is still practiced, sadly today, in in some countries. Uh, I, I know in some African countries, possibly some Middle Eastern countries. One of the reasons that the tradition still exists is because of women, the elder women in these tribal communities. Uh, uh, insist and engage in forcing young women, uh, uh, girls actually, uh, into uh, this this uh, horrible event. I'm wondering if there is a correlation. Do you have a lot of women in the evangelical community who would oppose not only you personally, but any movement that would uh, take them out of this Uh, uh, patriarchal culture. Yes. Yes. Um, You you can just go to the Desiring God website and read the articles written by women maintaining um, these patriarchal structures and arguing that women's only place is within these patriarchal structures if they are to be godly women. Um, women are a big part of, in fact, I mean, one of the arguments I make in the making of biblical womanhood is that if women stop supporting this, it would no longer be a problem. Um, You know, patriarchy only works because women support it in some place, you know, in some ways, and especially patriarchy in the church. Um, And so when I, you know, I've thought a lot about this and uh, a lot of it has to do with women's identity. Um, women who grow up in these traditions are taught that to be a godly woman, this is what you do. This is what you are like. Um, and so as they, you know, as they believe that, as they internalize that, as they invest their entire life in this, some of them perhaps giving up other callings, um, some of them staying in relationships that maybe otherwise they wouldn't have stayed in, 
Um, so many of them putting up with, you know, less than ideal situations and patronizing circumstances at churches. And they have done all of this because they believe it is what they are called to do as godly women. And then when they are confronted with an idea that maybe that is not correct, it can be really frightening. Um, and I think it threatens women's identity. Um, I think some women also believe that, you know, some women really feel called to, to stay in the home, really feel called to primarily being mothers or primarily being supportive helpers of their husbands. Um, and they feel like if they, if they abandon complementarianism, that it would force them to abandon those choices that they've made. And that is also an incorrect assumption. I mean, the whole point of um, what I argue is that we should let women do whatever they feel called to do. And so if that calling is to be in the home and is to primarily be, um, you know, to be a mother and to support a spouse, um, they can do that. It's just that that is not a definition of their godliness and that it is not something that should be forced upon other women who are called differently. And so I think I think women support it because they misunderstand what it means if they supported women in ministry um, or they had a, have a different understanding. They think that it'll do something, it'll, um, you know, devalue the choices that they've made. And then I think some women's identity is so wrapped up in what they have done and what they have always done that it is, it, it's frightening to suddenly think maybe I'm wrong about this. Um, you know, I mean, I, I identify with that. It was a frightening thing for me to begin to begin to realize that this was unraveling. And what I had to, what I had to realize is that it wasn't my faith that was unraveling. It was a structure that had been built around my faith and that it was okay for that to unravel because that didn't actually have anything to do with my faith. Um, but for some people, it feels like their faith is unraveling. And it's interesting, perhaps they might be looking to one of the failings of secular feminism in the 1960s and 70s, yes. which created a caste system of professional women and homemakers. Uh, and, yes. and yeah, if you were just a homemaker, so to speak, then what's wrong with you? Why aren't you climbing the corporate ladder? Well, maybe I yes. just like my kids and I want to stay home. And exactly uh, right. uh, uh, thankfully, thankfully, that has been all ironed out, I believe. I, I, I'm, wait, I, I, <laughs> Maybe. I, I, really? <laughs> I, I see more and more uh, uh, homemakers, people, uh, women who have chosen that uh, uh, lifestyle and do not feel threatened by their friends who are in, uh, in the you workforce. Know, that is true. That is true. I think there are more and more women who feel that way. Um, I don't know if, I think, though, that still in more conservative circles, there is still a great deal of pressure put on women who do work outside the home to not work outside the home. Ah. I mean, you can even see this in the recent with Mark Driscoll. I mean, he told, you know, preached that um, a man who had a wife who worked was uh, being lazy. Um, and that, you know, that he was essentially forcing his wife to do something that God had not called her to do. 
and so this this sort of understanding that even a woman working outside the home reflects poorly on the godliness of a man um, within these Christian structures. And so I think on the one hand, while there are a lot of people who maybe grew up in more liberal environments, um, maybe grew up with professional women working all around them who have then made choices to not do that. I think they feel pretty liberated to do that. But I think maybe within conservative circles that still emphasize that women's that both men and women's godliness is tied up in proper roles within the family, which includes women at home and men at work, that there is still a great deal of pressure to um, to have that type of, of family. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Dr. Beth Allison Barr. She is the author of Making The Making of Biblical Womanhood, and she will be the central figure in a webinar coming up on November 17th, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later on in the show. Um, Speaking of complementary, how does your book complement, and how does this other book complement your book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, and by the other book I'm talking about, Jesus and John Wayne. What, what, <laughs> what direction does that go in that, that yours may not? Yes. No, you know, the publication of Jesus and John Wayne and the making of biblical womanhood within eight months of each other. Uh, is it eight months? Something. Yes, I think so. Eight or nine months um, is really one of those uh, strange and fortuitous circumstances. Uh, Kristen and I have known each other for Kristen Dumay, who's the author of Jesus and John Wayne. We have known each other for several years and have, were colleagues writing on the anxious bench on Patheos together long before we ever thought of writing either of our books. Um, we both knew that each other had started these books and were working on them, um, but it wasn't until we read each other's books that we really realized what we were doing. And they do go very well together. In fact, they fit within a framework of books that are coming out by historians that are really starting to unravel these structures that evangelical Christians have built up around the gospel. Um, You can put other books in like Jamar Tisby's The Color of Compromise um, and Thea Butler's, you know, White Evangelical Racism, uh, etc. Even Amy Bird's um, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Um, So Kristen's book is targeting the development of white Christian masculinity. Um, The currents within white evangelical culture that made Donald Trump, rather than being an anomaly, which is what many evangelical Christians claimed, that he was just, you know, he, he, he was just, he was the better of two evils, is often the way that it was put out there, um, that they voted for him because there was no other candidate, but he's not normally somebody they would have voted for. Kristen completely undermines that understanding and shows that Donald Trump is the logical outcome of what evangelicals have been doing throughout the 20th century as they have created this this culture of white toxic masculinity. Um, and so in some ways, Donald Trump is exactly what evangelical Christians created. I never thought otherwise. Now, I, <laughs> I, 
I know that's not your book, so you may not know the answer, but I'm just curious. The title, is the title an homage, uh, Jesus and John Wayne? Is it an homage to John Piper and Wayne Rudum? No, I don't. I don't think so. You know, I've never asked Kristen. I don't think so. I'm sure it's not. I'm being an idiot. (laughs) Well, but that's actually funny. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, Tell us about it. You mentioned last week the CBMW. Yes. Talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. It also appears in Jesus and John Wayne and appears in my book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And it is an organization of Christian scholars and pastors um, who in the 1980s were very concerned about um, what they considered to be the um, liberal strain of feminism that they thought had entered into evangelicalism and was corrupting the church. And so they formed the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. They also were behind the authoring of um, the very famous Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which was edited by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. And what they argued is that was in, in, it stems in many ways from James Dobson with Focus on the Family, um, that the problems in the evangelical church and the liberal drift of the evangelical church was because we have missed God's vision for what women and men are supposed to do. And the way to return to return godliness, essentially, to the evangelical church, to return the focus to the gospel, the gospel coalition, um, is by reordering our lives, our families, in the way that God designed them. And the way they argue God designed them was women submitting to the authority of men. And that is really, that is the, um, the, the crux of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. It is to maintain masculine authority and emphasize the importance of female submission. And that by doing, keeping that properly ordered household, it will you know, provide that families will be in God's will. Um, it also has some of, you know, the overtures of Bill Gothard um, and, you know, the protection that, it, that God provides you if you stay within his well-ordered household. Um, so the Council for Biblical and Manhood, Manhood and Womanhood began as a fringe group in the 1980s, uh, but they very quickly gained traction. One of the, they went hand-in-hand hand with the conservative resurgence of the Southern Baptist Convention. A lot of the people who are associated with the conservative resurgence and with rewriting the Baptist faith and message of 2000, which wrote that women are to graciously submit to the authority of their husbands, um, they were also the architects of the Danvers Statement, which was the famous statement, again, issued by the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood in the 1980s um, that argued that God's plan was for women to be under male authority. So all of these people sort of, it's actually a small group of people, but they were all very connected and they were working together. And um, they began to emphasize this God, you know, this godly design within marriage, and they also got the Christian publishing world behind it, and it very quickly infiltrated churches, it infiltrated, um, you know, seminaries, um, with the conservative resurgence in the Baptist world taking over the six flagship seminaries of the Baptist world and beginning to require complementarianism be taught and not allowing women to be in pastoral tracks. All of this 
had a significant in, uh, influence on shifting the conservative evangelical world into believing that female submission was a requirement of the gospel. We just have a few minutes left. Um, I'd like to ask a question, if you can answer it uh, uh, concisely. Is it true? I, I see evangelical women going out on these campaigns. They fill uh, uh, concert halls and stadiums, and for all intents and purposes, they're preaching, but they're not in a church. Is that normally okay with the power structure in male evangelical circles? Sometimes. It depends. Um, You can take, for example, John Piper and Beth Moore. Um, John Piper has appeared at conferences with Beth Moore, where Beth Moore has taken center stage um, and has, for all practical purposes, preached. But at the same time, often what you find is you find the language that's put out there is that the woman is not actually preaching in the same way of men. They're often talking about experiences. Um, They're talking, they often will make reference that they're under the authority of their pastor who maybe put them out there. Um, So we see women making clear accommodations, emphasizing that they're not doing the same thing that men are doing. Um, But we do find that some men, in fact, Russell Moore in 2006, wrote that people like Beth Moore were the gateway to feminism. Um, I think he has since regretted that and has retracted that, but, or at least, you know, seems to have. Um, but at the same time, there was an understanding that having women in those types of prominent positions did, was not something that um, evangelicals should be doing. So I would say there's mixed feelings about it. Um, I was trying to be concise. <laughs> <laughs> you were concise, right on the mark. So this is this is the time where I have where I have to say thank you so much, Beth. It's uh, been a pleasure speaking to you uh, this week and last week as well. And I do want to mention once again uh, your webinar, which is focused on your book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. It's happening on November seventeenth at twelve noon Eastern Daylight Time. Uh, you will be speaking with Dr. Amanda Benkheisen and Reverend Elaine May of the Christian Reformed Church. It will originate uh, here in Grand Rapids, along with you, wherever you happen to be. And that uh, people can learn more about this and register by emailing womensleadership at crcna.org. Beth, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella. Please join us again next week here on WGVU-FM. Hello, I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. One thing we can say about every ancient religion that has survived to this day, no matter what wonderful traditions, culture, moral code, or philosophy that you have brought to this world, part of your legacy is in some way a mistreatment of women, whether viewing them as property, burning witches, stoning adulterers, keeping menstruating women out of temples. Somewhere, somehow, the little cynic within keeps nudging us 
to believe, possibly, that religion was created by and for men. You may have heard that the American evangelical community has been shaken in recent years by accusations of toxic masculinity, sexual abuse, and the cover-ups. If you're listening to this in late October 2021 and not on a podcast, note that on Wednesday, November 17th at 12 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, there will be a webinar that explores these and other issues. In this webinar, Dr. Amanda Bankhuysen and Rev. Elaine May of the Christian Reformed Church here in Grand Rapids will talk with Dr. Beth Allison Barr about her new book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, and discuss what the Bible does and does not say about women and women's roles. They will also reflect together on the impact ideas about biblical womanhood have had on women, the church, and abuse. You can learn more about joining this webinar, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, by emailing womensleadership at crcna.org. To give you a sneak preview of just what one might expect from this event, we've asked Dr. Beth Allison Barr to join us. And a little bit about her. Dr. Beth Allison Barr is a professor of history and associate dean of graduate studies at Baylor University, where she did her undergrad work. And she received her master's and Ph.D. in medieval history from the University of North Carolina. Her research focuses on women and religion in medieval and early modern England, especially in how they are viewed and portrayed in sermon literature. Beth is the author of The Pastoral Care of Women in Late Medieval England, co-editor of The Acts of the Apostles, Four Centuries of Baptist Interpretation. She is also a regular contributor to The Anxious Bench, a religious history blog on Pathios, which has paved the way for her contributions in Christianity Today and The Washington Post. So we welcome to Common Threads, Dr. Beth Allison Barr. Hello, Beth. Hi, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, My first question is a word that has come up in your book and in this this whole movement is complementarianism. And I, I'd like to explain what that is. I always thought I was a complementarianist because I like to compliment people if they are having a, <laughs> a good hair day or, you know, they they did something wonderful at work. I usually say, hey, add a boy, add a girl or something. But it's not that, is it? It is not. And indeed, one of the things I have to keep catching myself on, because I I write the word complementarian so many times, is I have to spell it not as in a compliment, which is what you're just talking about, but as in complementary roles, um, which is what the phrase refers to. And the phrase, it's a really new word in some sense um, that was actually coined in the late 80s. And it was coined by a group of men who were involved with the founding of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Many of them were also involved in the beginning of the Gospel Coalition. And the word, they came up with the term complementarian because they were not satisfied with the phrase Christian patriarchy. And they thought that people had negative reactions to the phrase Christian patriarchy. And so they wanted a term that would uh, still, that would still support women's secondary roles to men, but be more palatable than the phrase Christian patriarchy. And so the term that they came up with was complementarity. 
Now, so Christian patriarchy was a thing. I mean, it was a term, and it was not—that's interesting, because as soon as I hear it out of your lips, I think of it in a pejorative sense. Yes. Um, Yeah, well— Go I'm on. not sad about that. Patriarchy <laughs> is not a good thing. <laughs> and and so so normally when we say that one thing complements another, uh, that my work at the radio station here with my engineer Rick, we we complement each other in terms of uh, he knows exactly what to do mechanically and. Hopefully, I know what to do in front of a microphone. That, 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 that's a big if. But let's right. say we complement one another in our work, but there's not really a hierarchy involved. Um, but isn't complementarianism hierarchical? It is indeed. And that's, a, that's an interesting aspect to it because um, Complementarity does indeed mean what you just said, that you complement one another in the roles that you do. And so the term complementarianism used uh, as a substitution for Christian patriarchy um, is somewhat misleading. because and, And the reason that they chose the term is because they're trying to emphasize that women and men are indeed equal in the image of God and spiritually. Um, but that they are ordained by God to have different roles in life. And complementarianism um, emphasizes or tries to emphasize that different doesn't mean unequal. It's sort of like separate but equal. It should all, you know, bring up Plessy versus Ferguson um, um, ideas to us. But it's the it's a very similar argument that women have separate, distinct roles from men, but those roles are what they argue the equivalent. They're equally of value. It's just that women are not allowed to do some of the things that men are allowed to do. And those things that women are not allowed to do place them always underneath the authority of men. So it introduces hierarchy into what really isn't supposed to be a hierarchical word. Um, I will say quickly, there is some history, though, to complementarianism being used hierarchically. During the Enlightenment era, this is actually when the word was first introduced, to emphasize that women have subordinate, that women are intellectually inferior to men, intellectually and physically inferior to men. And so they have complementary roles where women are in the household and men are in the public sphere. And this was not a Christian idea. This was introduced by, um, you know, early modern philosophy that was by such as Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Um, and so it's not it's not a Christian idea, but it is, is a similar sort of thing, that women are created in a way to do distinctly different work from men that is underneath male authority. So it's not just the ancient religions that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. Uh, no. uh, uh, secular movements as well have yes. done the same thing. That's exactly right. Now, one thing that I have heard over the years from Christian sources is that Jesus was a feminist and that he, one of his, one of his goals was to elevate Jewish women from the milieu that they were living in uh, and and to to raise them up if you will um now jews i've heard uh, uh disagree with that 
understanding. Mm-hmm. Where do you fit in in, the, in that argument? So um, it is it is interesting the way that this argument has developed, and part of this within Christianity um, is is connected to anti-Semitism within Christianity. So there are some Christian scholars who argue that Christianity itself, through Jesus, is liberating, and that Judaism is not liberating for women. Um, This is misleading, uh, because on the one hand, the same types of uh, elevation of women that we find Jesus emphasizing, we also see God doing in the Old Testament. Uh, You can think about the story of Hagar, um, in which, you know, this woman who is uh, essentially, you know, is is forced into a sexual relationship with Abraham, bears him a son, then is thrown out um, and left to fend for herself, uh, God comes to her and God um, God protects her and she names God as the God who sees. And so what we, you know, see in the Old Testament is we have these moments in the same way that we see with Jesus, where we see God reaching out to particularly to take care of women and to lift them up and to make sure that they're protected in a very patriarchal society. So Jesus isn't doing anything different than what we see God doing in the Old Testament. Um, But early Christians who were, I'm sorry, by early Christians, I mean Christian thinkers and actually the modern um, world who were very interested in differentiating Christianity from Judaism, did portray Christianity as being a liberating force in the lives of women. Um, what The way that I would actually see it is that both Christian women and Jewish women in the first century lived in a patriarchal world. Um, and what we find is that the Christian, the Judeo-Christian tradition has always elevated women um, for both in the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition. Now, how Christian leaders and Jewish leaders implemented that has often been patriarchal. And because resorting back to those patriarchal, you know, the, the patriarchal influences of the world around them. So, so is that a little bit helpful? It, it is. So uh, what you're saying is it's possible that in first century Palestine, Perhaps there was an overarching patriarchy that that ignored the biblical the biblical stories uh, and God's word, if you will, and 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 perhaps Jesus was part of a movement that said, "Hey, we got to get back to what I believe is the the divine plan." Is that a possibility? Yes, and uh, yeah, that certainly is part of it. We also know that. You know, one of the reasons I think Paul was so comfortable with putting women in leadership positions is because there was already a tradition in Judaism to have women in leadership positions. So we actually do find there are parallels in the Jewish world with women being leaders and teachers. Uh, They were certainly not as as plentiful as men, but we do find them. And that's one of the things that um, Jewish scholars have emphasized is that um, the roles of women like Phoebe as a deacon and even Junia as an apostle, that uh, there were also women in the Jewish tradition in the first century playing similar leadership roles. So that provides even more evidence for the fact that women did continue in these types of leadership roles in the early church. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Dr. Beth Allison Barr, We're talking about both her book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, 
and the webinar that is coming up on November 17th of the same name. And we'll have more information about that webinar and how you can join later in the program. Uh, you you just brought up uh, Junia and uh, and others uh, in your in your book. You mentioned that when you had a student read Romans sixteen, which is a, a, a greeting for those of you who aren't familiar. It's a, it, Paul says hi to this person, hi to that person, hi to all these other people, <laughs> and and uh, in it he indicates, for instance, Junia, who is labeled a, a deaconess and and some other women as well as is, is it, it certainly sounds like they're kind of executives in in his uh movement and you said that it it kind of hit you how did you not know that before what was so important about this moment versus all of the other times you must have read that oh that is such a good question so, um, you know, it's one of those things is that you, one of the wonderful things about teaching is that every time we teach a text, we often come to it with new eyes and we see things. And so almost any text that I ever teach, every time I teach it, I see something different and something new in it. And sometimes, and I, I have exactly the same reaction that you just had, gosh, I should have seen that earlier. I don't know why I didn't see that until now. And um, so on the one hand, these were passages that I had been reading all of my life. Um, on the other hand, however, what I had not done until I really started teaching this course was reading different translations of that same passage and putting them side by side. And when you do that, when you take Romans 16 and you put, say, the English Standard Version um, next to the NRSV, and next to, and I didn't start using the NRSV, which is uh, very relevant, you know, in thinking about the interpretation of some of these women's passages, it's been very helpful to me, especially in 1 Corinthians 14. Um, so I put it together with, you know, the, with the ESV and the NRSV and the KJV and the 1611 KJV, and that's what we were actually looking at in class and reading. And one of the things that you see is the variations in these words that apply to women. But you don't see variations as much in the way the men are described, and that's something that, of course, stands out to me. Um, something else that hadn't occurred to me until later on is I had been doing some more scholarship in the first century church, and I had begun to realize that Romans 16, and this is something Scott McKnight talks about, is actually probably referencing house churches, because Romans is written to house churches in Rome. And so Scott McKnight posits that there's probably five to six house churches that are specifically mentioned in Romans 16. So what we are seeing here are the members of these house churches as well as the leaders of these house churches in Romans 16. So I think those things together, reading all of these translations side by side, as well as this knowledge that I had been learning about the house churches in Romans, um, made me suddenly, suddenly it jumped out to me what was going on in this, you know, that fact that there are so many women that are mentioned in this passage, um, that we have a woman who is mentioned as a deacon, we have a woman who is mentioned as an apostle, we have women who are mentioned in these house church leadership roles, and it really did. It was just one of where those things came together for me in this classroom, and I suddenly realized that this passage 
underscored women in every leadership position available in the first century church. Um, so it was just, it was, you know, it's not the first time I've had a moment like that teaching. I think all teachers will, will can talk about similar things that have happened. But um, it was a convergence. And, and it was actually, um, I didn't intend to read it from so many different versions. It's just that I had a student who had a copy of the ESV in class. And I then wanted, you know, had it read also from different versions. And so I think that's really what it was, was putting all those versions side by side that made it jump out to me, what was going on with Junia, what was going on with Phoebe. Um, After this episode in class, one of my students actually went on to write her research paper on Junia, and she actually got it published in an undergraduate um, journal. Uh, so it also stuck out to her <laughs> um, after after we read these texts together. Now, people who would criticize your work, uh, who do maintain a more so-called traditional understanding of, of male-female roles, uh, particularly in the church, uh, they would say that, yes, these people did have roles in the church, roles of leadership, but that their leadership, but that their roles were designed specifically to minister to women so that they weren't preaching to a a mixed crowd or instructing men. How, How would you respond to that? Well, yeah, that is, um, that's particularly in reference to the role of deaconess. And there is in the um, really in the North African tradition, in the Coptic tradition, um, we find that early on, by the second and third century, there is a differentiation between the role of deacon and the role of deaconesses, and they were to take care of the spiritual development of men, deacons, and deaconesses for the women. Um, and so we do see that division happen, but it is, it's a later division. We can trace it. It's in the second and the third century that we see it developing. Um, and the role of deaconess, though, the role of a female deacon is not always defined in that way as being caring for particularly women. Um, we also know that the role of Phoebe here as, and she's the one who is labeled as a deacon, servant, we know that that word that is used to describe Phoebe is the same word that is used throughout Luke and Acts on multiple occasions to describe the work of the male apostles. So it is exactly the same word that's used to describe the work of men um, who are in these leadership roles that we don't question throughout other parts of the Bible. The only other time that we really see this word applied specifically to a woman is to Martha, and we have done the same thing with Martha. We have Martha of Bethany. We have read it as being a different type of deacon than the men, but there's no indication in the text that it should be read this way. This is something we have carried completely to the text. So we've done this with Phoebe. In the first century world, there is no reason that this role would have been differentiated. And in fact, we know that Phoebe was given the Book of Romans and was entrusted with it to take it back to Rome. And she wasn't just a messenger um, in the sense that she put it in her travel bag and carried it to somebody else. When you were given the text like that, you were also the first preacher of that text. So what we find is Paul entrusts the book of Romans, which scholars have said is, you know, in some ways the most important of his letters, and he sends it back with a woman to be read by a woman to a mixed audience 
of men and women in house churches, because house churches, that was one of the scandalous things that early Christians did, is that they met all together, women and men and children and slaves, all meeting together in one assembly. And so Phoebe would have been reading the letter to these early house churches in Rome. So I, I just don't think there's any validity. There's, there's not any... The evidence clearly suggests that Phoebe's role as deacon in the first century was the same tasks that men, that the male disciples were doing, so why, or the male deacons were doing. Thank you. So, so why is it that there are Christian denominations today who do not offer a role of deaconess to women when it is a biblical tradition? That's a very good question. Um, so what you often find is you find in some more conservative churches that they say, oh, yes, women should have the role of deaconess. Um, but then they do one of two things. Either they don't really, they never get around to electing women to that office. So you end up with churches that, you know, espouse that women can be deaconess, but then they never put women in that position. You have some churches, like in the Southern Baptist tradition, that would often say that the deaconess is simply the wife of the deacon. Um, and so they would say, you know, you elect a man to be a deacon, and his wife, by default, becomes a deaconess. And so you kind of get around it that way. I remember that because my grandmother was considered a deaconess because she was married to a deacon in a Southern Baptist church. Um, and so some kind of get around it by doing that, by extending it to the to the married spouse of a deacon. Um, and some translations even emphasize that within the text, that that's what, you know, is going on here, that the deaconess is the wife of a deacon. Um, and then others, I mean, part of it is is just the way that we have translated these texts in our English Bible translations. We have, you know, Phoebe, the word that's used to describe her as deacon, is often not translated as deacon. It's translated as servant. And this implies that she has a different type of role than the male deacons. She's not given the same title in our English Bible translations. Um, the same with Martha that we find in Luke. Um, the word deacon associated with her is is mostly is translated as tasks. And um, the way we tell the story of Martha is that she, you know, her tasks are domestic and household focused um, instead of ministry tasks. So I. Part of it is, is our English Bible translations, that we minimize the role of women and what they were actually doing. And this leads us to then practice that minimization of women's roles within the ecclesiastical structures of our churches. And when, when Paul refers to somebody as an apostle, what do we think he was saying? And, and he refers to a woman as an apostle, but I would be just as surprised if he said, and greetings to Harry, an apostle. I mean, what makes an apostle? Yes, an apostle was an early, you know, in the beginning, an apostle was one of the um, early leaders of the church who was appointed by Jesus, who saw Jesus and was sent with the message of Jesus. They are the messengers of the gospel. Um, and we know that term was also used, you know, Paul says that he's the last sort of apostle in the sense that he was one of the witnesses of Christ. Uh, but we also know that there were a lot of women who were involved in these early groups, who were with Jesus, who witnessed. I mean, again, we have Mary and Martha, who are examples of this. They witnessed Jesus. Um, they were with him during his teachings. They witnessed the, resur the, the crucifixion. And, of course, it was Mary who was the first at the resurrection. 
Um, so they fulfill all of these requirements of being an apostle, of having been with Jesus, having seen Jesus, having um, received the teachings of Jesus, and then having, after the resurrection of Christ, actually then going out to tell others about Jesus. And in fact, the medieval tradition is that Mary and Martha actually went and became, you know, great evangelists um, in France. Uh, there's not any historical evidence to that, but it's interesting that that story, that they're, they're depicted in that way as being evangelists, missionaries, apostles in France. Um, so there was a lot of people who are associated with Jesus that we don't necessarily get the names from. We can also think about the, the 72 that are sent out, um, those early evangelists in Luke. So the word apostle is particularly referring to these folk in these early groups who were part of the early teachings of Jesus um, that believed were followers of Jesus and then continued to spread the gospel after the resurrection. Um, and we know that women were among these groups. I can imagine now a very precocious Sunday school student uh, making a teacher crazy when asked, <laughs> and how many apostles were there, Johnny? <laughs> yes, indeed. And then mentioning all of the possible names. Yes. Yes. You yes. know, <laughs> uh, uh, we like Sunday school answers. We like real clear <laughs> Sunday school answers. Yes. Uh, Beth, we are down to the wire for this edition of Common Threads, but this is a great conversation, and I hope you can join us next week, and we'll continue. I would be happy to. You've been listening to WGVU's Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella. Uh, my guest today has been Beth Allison Barr. She will be the star of a webinar that is going to be taking place on November 17th. It is uh, going to be at 12 Eastern Daylight Time. It's sponsored by the Christian Reformed Church. And you can learn more about that event by going to Women's Leadership at crcna.org. I'm Fred Stella. Join us next week. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. Common Threads.